Hi guys, and welcome to another edition of the Fight Up Boxing Podcast. I'm Lukash, as ever, and I'm here to tell you, and I know this will shock some, that Jake Paul versus Tyron Woodley was not rigged. I know some people really want it to be rigged, probably not too many of them listen to this podcast, but there it is. He got hit in the face, he fell over, and that's as much as I'm going to dignify that fight with. I'm going to move on, and I'm going to talk about Parker versus Chisora. That was a fun fun and very stupid fight happening last weekend. And on that card, there are a couple more things I want to talk about. So I'll mention um, I'll mention Jack Cullen versus Kevin Lenitaggio. You know, minor fight in the scheme of things, but it was fun and a few things to mention. And a little bit on Lerone Richards' win over Carlos Goncora as well, because that, that could end up being relevant. And um, after that, I'll move on to the fight. The Friday night fights, um, which I had to skip in my preview because, you know, life happened and uh, I didn't get the preview out before the fights happened. But um, the Friday fights were probably of more relevance in the immediate future for various divisions than uh, than the Saturday one night ones were. So I'll talk a bit about um, the Destroyer, Baterbiev, and um, then I'll talk also talk about the card that happened which was topped by Israel Madrimov. And um, I might do a bit on um, the return of Beck the Bully as well. Um, spoilers, I wasn't impressed. But um, well, let's get... And then I might talk about the American card on the Saturday. We'll see how my, how long this whole thing takes. And if I, if I have time at the end, I'll uh, maybe dig into it a bit. In the digging, Dig it a bit into Zedra Ramirez versus Ionieski Gonzalez and... Um, Dave Morrell versus Atlantis Fox. Might, might do a little, talk a little bit about those. But, um, we'll see how that goes. Anyway, let's start off with uh, the Big Dogs, the British card, which was, as I said in my preview, a deep and fun card, even if, you know, as I, as I uh, have been just implying, it wasn't all that relevant towards the top of the divisions, uh, especially at the top of the heavyweight division. But um, there was a lot of fights on there that were just solid, fun, good matchups. So let's get on with it. As anyone who watched it will know, and if you didn't, you know, it's worth seeking out. It's not going to change your world. It wasn't one of these completely wild slugfests, or obviously it was never going to be some highly technical boxing clinic, but it wasn't any one of these wild back and forthers. But um, Chisora versus Parker. Um, I should name it Parker versus Chisora, really, shouldn't I? As uh, Chisora had lost the last one, Parker had the uh, top of the bill. In any case, doesn't matter. Um, yeah, it was just a, it was one of those heavyweight fights. It was both surprising amounts of fun, despite being quite one-sided. Parker was very clearly the dominant man, and it was also heavyweight in the sense of being just ridiculously stupid some of the time. And I mean, the reason for that is hinges on something that I want to get into, which was going into the fight and even watching the first couple of rounds of the fight, I did wonder if if um, Parker's uh, trainer, who he trains now with Andy, with Andy Lee, um, if he was going to be able to coach Parker's natural tendency to be gun-shy, to be a little bit hesitant to throw sometimes out of him. And my... Initial reaction after the first two rounds was, no, maybe he has. And then I was a bit blasé about this on Twitter. So I said, no, no, he has not. Uh, truth is, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Because 
in the situations, the thing about Parker is in, in the past, what would happen is he'd give up on throwing punches. He'd give up on throwing his own combinations, bail out in the middle of combinations or just not engage at all. If he saw a punch coming at him or if he thought there was might be one coming at him, he'd just flinch away and stop throwing or he'd keep throwing, but it would be stop it, it would turn stoppy and messy. And that isn't what happened here. Like, um, I think Andy, I think Lee's coaching, Andy Lee's coaching has trained, has it's given him something. He's much more in command of where he is. He, like, he seems to know his own position way better in the ring. He was anticipating Chisora's uh, approaches and intercepting them, throwing his own punches in a way that he hadn't been doing previously. And that was why I initially thought, you know, I know to a certain extent it must probably true that um, in those instances they have been working on that tendency to flinch and using it instead you know, using, possibly using the situations which was previously triggering a flinch to tr- trigger, trigger Parker throwing something instead, which is, you know, pretty necessary for a boxer and might make him into, you know, it's never going to be a counter punching genius, but, uh, but it might work for him. So in that sense, yeah, Chisel, um, Parker did improve in the sense that he didn't, he wasn't a uh, flinching away. And that's probably the fight, the fight changer, really. Um, he wasn't flinching away when Chisora threw shit at him. Which may well have been the you know key difference between the two fights because the first one was quite you know morley and grindy, which this one wasn't. And uh, I think I th- I think some of the difference in that you know I can't speculate exactly what was in Parker's head, but um, I feel like some of the difference there was that Chisora was having more success in the first fight in making the fight this grindy mess because whenever he threw things coming in, Parker would just kind of flinch again instead of moving away or punching to counter and in this one he was uh, either sharply intercepting those approaches or moving away as he needed to when he needed to and that was the difference maker but and this is where it got really stupid and this is where Andy Lee where Andy Lee did, did not just not train out the <laughs> the gun shy tendencies but was actively encouraging them it was that on multiple occasions um Parker had Chisora badly hurt, he knocked him down several times, and then he'd let him, you know, either get up or just recover, and he, Chisora would literally just trundle over to a corner very slowly, and then lay on the ropes, and Parker would just sort of stand there and watch him go over, and then he'd sort of walk up to him, keep him trapped in the corner, but not throw any punches very slowly for 20 seconds, and then they'd get, then he'd sort of get to work, and, um, and it was, it's just like, yeah, okay, the first time we did it, it was so, it's such a weird, you know, so, so weird, the movement from Jezora that you might think it's a trap the first time he does it. But the second time he does it, you've got to be thinking, okay, even if it is a trap, I'll get my guard up, I'll come in, I'll test what he's feeling like. And Parker didn't do that. And the third time it happened, he didn't do that. And, you know, by the fourth or fifth time in the fight, that Jezora's very slowly walking over to the corner and then leaning on the ropes so that he can survive for a minute till the end of the round. So Parker really should have been just chucking himself, you know, keep it safe. Like, obviously, keep your guard up, keep your, you know, keep things, keep everything tucked in. But coming in, you know, at least lean on him, lean, give him a push, see what, see what's what, see if he's really, if he's acting, or if he's really reacting badly. And he just, you know, he was just standing there, like, I have no idea what, what the thought process was. You know, and Andy Lee's saying, yeah, keep it chill, keep it patient. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, keeping patient is great advice, but not letting a man who is visibly hurt 
you know, he was giving him half a minute at a time. It was madness. And then he was leaning in and letting Chizora hold on. It was, oh, it's, it was, in, oh, it was some of the worst ring IQ I've ever seen. And I mean, Park was clearly winning the fight. And um, Chizora, he got, quite rightly, got a lot of praise for, um, you know, never giving up and uh, grinding his way out to the final, <laughs> to the final bell. And it was one of those, you know, it wasn't a completely egregious beatdown, um, you know, it wasn't nice, which is all right. And you, you know, you're thinking about maybe he should be retiring at some point soon. Uh, you know, he's not going to. He's already declared that he'll be back. Um, yeah, it, was, it wasn't a complete one-sided beatdown, and um, that might have been part of the thinking that Chizora was always he was always thrown back. But that, you know, again, that's where that's why we call it being gun shy, right? You know, he, uh, the reason fighters get gun shy is because. Um, they're not sure if they're going to be, throw, be able to throw safely, and that just seemed to be the thought. That had to be the thought process. There was no other reason, and it was just like in that situation, you had, you know, you had to take some risk. It, it wasn't that big a risk if you did it properly. Like if Chizora was was as hurt as a he appeared to be, then you know there was any um, any one of like five or six occasions that uh, Parker would have ended the fight if he jumped on him quicker. And even if he was pretending, he wasn't in a position to, you know, he, the way he was pretending was taking away from his ability to really throw hard counters. So, like I say, tuck it up, put your guard up, come in a bit, and uh, it might you might have taken a shot. But you sh- uh, it, was, it was infuriating, I'm sorry. It was <laughs> hilariously bad fight decisions. Um, but other than, you know, other than that, there were things, there were things from Andy Lee as a trainer, um, from the way Parker's game changed, there, are, there were things to like in there, you know, it's not as if I'm watching this fight and thinking, you know, oh, he has to change trainer to someone more experienced straight away, because like I say, there were things that Parker did, he looked, like I said at the start of this um, little run, he was much more aware of his own space in the ring, he was um, controlling, he was controlling the space around him, which is, I think, it's something I bang on about fairly often, but it's something that's very important for boxers, is to have control of their own their own shape and stance and the space around them and uh, how their opponent approaches them. And that was much better from Parker. Like I say, he was intercepting. He, was, he looked much sharper than he often has. So in that, you know, other than these ridiculous moments of playing Chisora get off the hook, Parker looked much better than he ever has. Chisora just looked the same as he or Chisora always does. So it wasn't that Chisora looked like he'd fallen off. It was Parker made, took a step up and... Uh, made the first fight a lot less competitive than the second one. And I mean, the thing with Chizora, you've got to give him all the credit in the world, not just for this fight. Any long time, you know, fans, I say long time, anyone over the age of about 25 will probably remember um, Chizora getting absolutely flatlined by um, David Hay back in, was it 2012? I mean, it was a long time ago now, it's the point. And um, at that point, he looked... He looked washed as hell. He looked gone. He was. He looked like you. You know, at that point, I was thinking, and I'm sure I wasn't the only one. Oh, Chizora, my, you know, he'd been around for a bit by then, and uh, well, he was only 28. But um, you know, you were thinking, I don't know, you know, he'd been around for a bit. You were thinking either he's just not ever going to be, you know, this is going to be his future now, getting sparked out um, by anyone even vaguely world level. And um, now, what was it? Nine years later, 37 now. David Hayes, a distant memory in the heavyweight division, 
been uh, taken out by uh, David Bellew and uh, Chisora's still around at the top. You know, he's never he's not not, not ever going to challenge for a world title credibly again, but he's still rolling about, still worrying these fighters. Like, yeah, he's lost his last three fights against Usyk and uh, twice to Parker, but um, he was in all in all of those fights. He uh, he gave Usyk things to, to things to think about. You know, he wasn't as much of a threat as some people want to say, but um, you know, he he made Usyk work hard for his for his win he, uh, he gave Parker a scare the first time and uh, even in this one he's still you know in there throwing never giving up uh, you know he's never going to be a technical marvel uh, you may notice I'm not digging too much into there's just not that much to talk about it's just all right here he's not he's not an idiot but um yeah he's mainly there for his effort his physicality he just levers you know he levers his physicality into heaving himself around the ring being a threat to opponents and uh, yeah he's been doing that for so long now it's you know it's pretty incredible that someone who fights like he does has uh, garnered this career so long after getting melted back in 2012 and you know looking like that might be it for him um anyway um a couple of the a couple of things that i wanted to mention from the card um yeah the main support act was um I was actually a little surprised by this, but I probably should have been, shouldn't have been considering uh, the presences. I thought that um, the sort of higher level fight between um, Lerone Richards and uh, and um, Carla Gongora was going to be the co-main or the the second on the bill. Um, but Jack Cullen is a local boy and exciting, and uh, Lerone Richards is uh, not a local boy and. Um, Technical, let's say. Uh, I'll get to his fight later. But let's talk about Jack Cullen and his fight against Kevin Inosajo, um which is again not on a technical level, not one that had. I mean, there was technical stuff going on. Like there, this is high level boxing. There's there's always technical stuff to talk about, and the technical story of this this particular fight was that Jack Cullen. If you're familiar with him. You'll know this already. If you're not, you should watch him because even though he's never going to be a world level challenger, he's just fun to watch. He's just he's just always in wars, and I think that's the point. Really, is that um, Jack Cullen is a big tall guy for the division, but he is always always in scraps. And he said before that he wants to learn tech, to be technical. It's just not it's just not going to happen for him. Like it's just not who he is. He's never going to be going on the back foot, jabbing at range. You know, intercepting. It's just he, like I think people have. This is one thing that bugs me, and maybe at some point I'll uh, do a, an article or a special episode about this. Um, tall guys don't have to be outfighters. There is no requirement for them to be outfighters, and there are other ways they can use their height. And in some of those things, Jack Cullen does do well. Like he uses his big long levers. Um, the commentators had a delightful time because. Um, He's from a town called Little Lever, and they had a great time talking about his long levers, and he should be using his long levers. And uh, yeah, no, him. Uh, he does use his uh, art, his length to generate the power in his shots to get around the side. Like he throws a mean uppercut and um, nice, what, nice shots to the body, um, and he does that pretty well. It's the 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 thing that he doesn't do well is um, he doesn't keep himself safe while he's doing it, and he should be able to. You know, there's nothing in the rules that says that even a tall fighter has to um has to be bad at defending when they're inside like you can tuck up you can uh, 
you've got bigger arms, you can use them to cover more of yourself, even though your torso is longer, right? It's not a mutual, mutual exclusive thing. And um, that's the thing that Colin doesn't do so well. And that's what got him in trouble here. Um, Kevin Lelisager is a Frenchman. Um, he took this fight, at, I think it was about three days notice. And this is for a European belt, which is, you know, it's not a, it's a, it's not a bad belt trinket to have. It's a good thing. It's, I wouldn't even call it a trinket. It's a, having a Euro, European belt gets you decent challenges, puts you into the, into the frame for some uh, good opportunities and is a good step to world level. And I'm not sure Sajo is going to be world level. We'll, you know, we'll hopefully find that out. Yeah. Hopefully he'll get his chances to be on TV more after this. Um, but yeah, he came in and he's, he is a mauler. Like he is really, he might have been the most, like there were three insanely aggressive fighters on this card and he, you know, to be, in a shout for having that title when one of the guys on it is Alan Babich. Um, yeah, he's he just loves he loves throwing punches and he never gives anything up for free. Um, and what he likes to do is um, get on the chest of his opponent. Like he likes to maul his way in and then just sit on the chest of his opponent and throwing shots upstairs. And that did get him into trouble. And I was already getting annoyed with the referee. And so anyone who follows me on Twitter will know that I was pretty angry with the referee after this bout, which I'll get to in a second. But um, even during the fight, I was getting slightly annoyed with the, with the ref because, like, it would obviously be a mistake to call Kevin Sajo clean. Like, he was being, he was bullying in, and he was, hit, some of the shots were going behind the head, and there were clashes of the heads, and it was in part his fault. But the thing is that there was a massive difference in height between them. And um, Cullen was, what, what was happening was Cullen was leaning, basically leaning his chin on. Sajo's head, so that whenever Sajo tried to switch angles inside, he'd clip um, Cullen's chin, which, you know, there's just nothing he could do. Like, the referee was warning him for heads, and it was like, there's nothing he can... You know, you have to warn both of them, because if you're warning him for that, you're basically telling him he can come inside and then not move. And the same thing goes for the punches behind the head. Like, when Cullen's just leaning on top of him, there's what, you can't punch him, because you can't punch on top of your own head. So any punch he throws vaguely forward was going behind Colin's head. And it's like, yeah, warn him for that, but talk to Colin as well. Like, you can't put your chin on the top of, you know, on the crown of uh, Sajo's head. It just, yeah, so that was, I was getting annoyed. But yeah, so Sajo was coming in and he was working his, uh, he was doing what, uh, what he needed to be doing, which was like the punches up were really, it was really awkward. The, the height difference was such that when he got in that close, it was very hard to throw decent shots to the head. So he was working the body and that's what eventually won him the fight. He managed to get himself a clean little body shot off and, um, you know, Cullen dropped like a stone. Um, he managed to get up for the 10 count, but it was clearly not ready to continue. And as soon as the ref waved it off, um, he, uh, he went back down and he was getting checked. And this is where I got very annoyed at the referee because, um, and at the crowd, to be honest. I mean, the cr- the crowd were always going to boo Jack Cullen's lo- the local boy. Um, Sajo started celebrating. Yeah, of course he is. He's, he's won an unbelievable opportunity at three days' notice in a big upset and a shocking knockout. It, but it was a body shot, so his opponent, you know, he's hurt, but he's not, he's not in a sort of medical danger, is he going to wake up stuff. So, yeah, Sajo's celebrating, and the crowd started booing, so Sajo was like, you know, um, shithouse move, gets down on the floor, starts doing press-ups. Was, yeah, why not? 
look, yeah. And like the referee was within his rights, maybe, to say, look, if you keep doing this, the crowd's going to riot. So, you know, chill, chill the fuck out. But what he didn't, what he did was get up, walk up to Kurt, walk up to Sajo, wave his finger in his face like he's talking to a three year old, and tell him to get back to his corner and wait. And it's like, no, that's just that. What are you doing? Um, it was it was embarrassing from the referee, but um, but it was a great, it was a good fun fight. Seek it out, good fun fight, upset victory. Hopefully we'll see, and hopefully we'll see more of them and um, more of Sajo. And uh, I mean, hopefully we'll see more Cullen again. I think you know, we will, we will do probably back more on the British circuit now that he's um he's been a stop short European. Um, but yeah, Cullen's a likable guy. Like, don't get me wrong. None of my problem with what happened after the fight was with Cullen. Um, Cullen's a fun fighter. He seems to be a nice guy, apart from the North Face tattoo that he inexplicably has on his shoulder. Um, and yeah, so hopefully he doesn't take, you know, hopefully he takes the, the right lessons that when you're a tall guy fighting inside, you need to protect your body and not the wrong lessons that um, that he shouldn't be at this level. Because yeah, he was a competitive. It's not as if he's got a class. He was probably winning. I, I didn't really score, I've got to be honest. But um you know, you'd probably say Colin was winning the rounds. He just he just got he took a hard body shot and got knocked out. It happens. Anyway, let's move on to the final fight from this card that I want to talk about, which was Lorraine Richards versus Carlos Congora. And this was a minor, you know, it was a minor upset, I think, on the bookies odds. But um, you know, Congora had had much more experience. But it was one of those he's had more experience, but it wasn't against really. Very proven world level guys. It was the, the the level of his opponents had been higher than Richards, and um, and he like that it had been an upset in himself when he beat um, Ali Akhmedov, but it wasn't as if Akhmedov was a dominant fighter in the division. It was one of those, you know, it's a, it was a good fight of uh, guys of relatively similar level, um, complete star clash because um, yeah, um, Gongora, as we know, is a aggressive i mean he's not always a push forward fighter but he, um you know against ali akhmedov he fought on the back foot but um but it was high volume lots of pocket fighting um the thing was um yeah and lebron richards is as pure an out fighter as you're going to see he doesn't like being inside at all no. and he doesn't throw with an awful lot of power either so um so he was going to be moving and not really engaging and apparently People, including Eddie Hearn, were surprised and disappointed by this, and that, that was always going to be his plan. And the, the question was whether whether he was going to be able to move well enough to stop Gongora getting to him, um, because he's no, he he has historically made allowed himself to get trapped in corners. And if we're honest, even here, like his movement was good. Um, don't get me wrong, but um, but better ring cutters than Gongora will be able to find. Richards, but but um, yeah, Gongora. The thing, um, what it turns out is, Gongora when he's in the pocket, when he's in the space, he's very nice. He's got nice lips, nice, nice, nice counters. Nice, he catches things, catches and counters very well. He's very tricky to deal with once he's in the pocket. But what Richards rather exposed here is that um, he doesn't really very good at getting to the pocket when the opponent doesn't also want to be there. And Richards just didn't, you know, he has a very nice jab. He moves well, like I say. And he just didn't, there was very rare occasions when he let him get there. And there were a few, like, there was, no, there was a thing that um, potential future opponents of Richards would have noted. Um, that uh, Gongora did start to sort of um, 
force him back in straight lines and then he'd chase him in these straight lines and um which is look, would look very uncomfortable and get very off balance and then Gongoro would throw an overhand right fall over the top of him and um just stagger and Richards would have time to get two or three shots off um while Gongoro reset which was a big problem for him like that could have been the difference between him winning the fight and what happened which was him getting distinctly outclassed for several rounds um yeah um you know, it was there was never really a shout. I, I think I, I scored eight four. Um, you could have maybe scored it a bit closer. There wasn't that much leeway to give, but even scoring eight four, it was one of those situations where almost all the f- fight the, the rounds I gave to Gongora were close, and the rounds I was giving to Richards were clearly Richards won them. Like Gongora just didn't get anything done. So. Um, so yeah, Gongora just didn't have any answers. He didn't have any adjustments to make, and like that would have been maybe one this whole this situation where he figured out a way to make Richards uncomfortable, and then couldn't find a way to capitalize on it. So it stayed an outside fight. He like Gongora had no way to get it inside on any regular basis whatsoever. And so all he, you know, he he cracked him a couple of times over the top of the jab or with the right hand, uh, but uh, you know he he can get closer behind that. So it became a sort of jab and move, jab and move. People were enjoying it. I enjoy Richards. Like he seems a, I like it. I like his personality. He seems, you know, he's he's not a big hype hype man. You know, despite a rather ornate nickname, um, Sniper the Boss. He's not a big hyped fellow, and he has a very enjoyable B gimmick. Like everything about his ring entrances and his ring attire. He didn't wear the wings this time. He has come out in the past with bumblebee wings off his shorts. This time he stuck with a black and yellow theme, but um, sadly no wings. Um, but yeah, I enjoy him in the ring too. Like He's not going to be, you know, if you're in there for blood and thunder, he's not going to be your thing. But I like the way he has a very good jab. Like I say, he has slick movement, and I like the way he intercepts. Like, I think that's one of the things is, for me, you know, between a very dull outfighter and uh, one that I enjoy, is that even though he's not engaging, you know, in extended exchanges, and he's not hurting the guy, really, he's a pretty powder puff puncher for someone that looks like he does and fights at Super Murderway, but he does throw intercepting shots, like, he does try to catch opponents as they come in, and he uses his timing nicely, and he's a good... You know, if if you're there for the wars, you're not going to be a a fan of Lorraine Richards, but if you like a little bit of... um, schooling um yeah it's um whether he uh is capable of really mixing it at world level because technically he is now a world champion but it's the rbo no one cares about the rbo even uh even his promoter eddie hearn um you know in the midst of being pretty disrespectful sitting next to him and saying you know he needs to knock people out he should have gone for the finish which is just a bit of a kick in the balls but even eddie hearn who has been known in the past to pretend to care about the idea he this time he couldn't bring himself to it's just it's not a relevant belt is it but um but you know Richards is now going to be on the radar of um some other fighters at super middleweight and uh yeah maybe you can say you know he's not going to get win the canelo sweepstakes anytime soon even if canelo does stay at, at super middle but um yeah he'll be around he'll uh he'll fight at world level like he he just beat a world level fighter. He'll fight again at world level, and it'll be interesting to see where he goes. And um, you know, Gongora will be back. He's not a young fella, but um, he's not he's not fallen off a cliff or anything. He just found a fighter who did things that he hasn't got an answer for. And um, you know, maybe at this age he'll never learn. A, you know, he'll never learn to fill that gap in of um, 
finding his way closer to a guy like Richards. Um, but there will be other fights for him, even if he never does. There will be other fights for him where he will have successes, and he'll always be fun to watch if the guy, you know, if he does get those engagements. Um, so, um, yeah, that's another one where um, it was a result I was pleased with. But, um, you know, I know Gongora has, has his fans worldwide. Not everyone would have been pleased with it. But, um, you know, one, it's, it's a brilliant fight in the division and uh, worth seeking out at least in part, even if you don't like the... Um, even if you don't like watching Richards in the long run, um, it's worth seeing what he brings because he will be around in the division and... Uh, you know, you want to stay, uh, stay in, stay invested. You want, you, you want to know what's happening. You should watch Lerone Richards. Is what I'm saying here. Okay, so that's what I wanted to touch on from the British card. Um, now moving on to, like I, as I said, the um, the Friday night cards. And um, yeah, let's talk about better be of the Destroyer first. Um, yeah, um, what can you say? He's um. He's a dramatically violent fighter. Um, his uh, he started off like as uh, has sometimes happened to him. He started off having a little bit of worry. Um, not I wouldn't call it worry exactly, but in the first couple of rounds, um, Marcus Brown, his opponent, um, he was probably the busy of the two, and it seemed like maybe Beterbiev was having trouble. You know, referring back to that um, Goncora versus Richards fight, it looked like Baterbiev was maybe having trouble getting into the space where he was comfortable throwing punches. Certainly wasn't as a as sticking out as far as um, Gongora, and that showed subsequently fairly strongly when in later on um, he started. Um, he did start getting those shots off, and there was this uh, big. Um, it was still pretty even through round three, and then there was this clash of heads. I think it was in round four. Right at the start of round four, they had this accidental clash of heads, but they were switching sides, and they just smacked themselves. And but but got this nasty cut in the middle of his forehead. Yeah, I mean that was bleeding everywhere, and um, yeah, they went through the round. Um, you could already see that Baterbiev. Like, he'd been picking up the pace a little bit in round three, but he he uh, started pushing putting the pressure on in. Uh, Round four, um, fairly fairly strongly. Um, you, you could tell he knew there was a risk of uh, of being stopped on cuts, and that he might not be up at that point. Like he he probably lost the first two rounds, and then you know in the middle, in between the rounds, the doctor looked at both men because um, Brown was cut as well. He had a mark over his um, right eye, which you know in in practice probably not an awful lot better for him than uh, what Bertopia was supporting, but. Um, but uh, Batavius was a you know big gash in the middle of his forehead, bleeding down both sides of the face. It was it was a nasty cut, and um, yeah, the the doctor took a look at it in the in between rounds and said, you know, one more round. And turns out the Batavius corner took care, took care enough. You know, they they obviously knew what they were doing with the cut, and um, and they got through several more rounds. But the point is that Batavius, once he was under the impression that the fight might be ended. Uh, any time he really got to work and that's when you got to see that he's a uh, he's seen as this big brute and he is not you know he's not uh he's not like uh one of the most um he's not slick is what i'm gonna i'm gonna say here and um he's a very fun fighter to watch in part because you know his footwork is okay his his scent, he he knows where he needs to be in the ring all the time like he's his cutting off of space and everything all of that it's very good. It's super high level, but his um, 
the footwork that he uses to do it is, uh, to put it kindly, riddled with errors. Um, you know, he's not, um, he, he just sometimes just kind of, you know, uh, you know, he lump, he trips, he overreaches, he um, he takes himself off balance quite a lot um, to get into a position. Like once he's in position, he's fine. He does these little steps. Um, um, uh, Taylor of, uh, fight, of, of my fellow fights up writer, who you know, um, he did mention like um, I believe it was him um, that Bertipio was doing these little sub steps. Um, um, just had a conversation about this um, elsewhere on. Um, Bad left hook, but um, was doing, you know, he's doing these little side side steps, and he's, he does not, he does neat tidy things once he's in position. But he does make big, crude errors getting himself into the position where he's punched. It's what got him knocked down by Callum Johnson, and I think it's what, um, I think he's had trouble with it in, from other fighters as well, although not to the level where he got sat on his ass by Johnson. And, um, yeah, and he has no really, you know, he does, he uses guard to catch and stuff, but his, Otherwise, has no thought for defense. His head doesn't move. Um, but attacking-wise, he is very. I mean, I wouldn't refined would be the wrong word, but he's very skilled. And his punching is his hands are insane. Like it's not just. Uh, I don't just mean in the very literal sense that he hits really fucking hard. And if you see, it, there's this famous-ish photo of him. Um, you know, doing the pose with his promoter at the time. He's got this fist. Um, fist up and his knuckles are like each of his knuckles is probably you know it looks like they're as big as my fist it's ridiculous um, so his hands are insane in the literal sense but um, he's also he's a his punch picking is incredible his uh, the way he varies the speed and angle of his each punch is incredible um, he's very very hard to defend once you've once he's got you trapped against the ropes because you just don't, you know, you can't, even the most active guard is going to have trouble adjusting to everything or predicting everything that's going to happen. He's got a very subtle, you know, it's not it's not a word you'd associate with someone like that, uh, but his attacks are in behind a brutality, subtle. Like, and there's no other way to put it. He varies the timing, he varies the positioning of the way, he varies the angle the punches are coming from, and you just can't defend against it all the time. And when you combine all that with possibly being the hardest puncher in boxing today, like punch for punch, like obviously Deontay Wilder's wild jumping, looping right hand is lands harder than anything Berterpiff does. But there is an argument to be made that um, not just pound for pound, but overall Berterpiff might be the hardest hitter with every shot that, you know, on average with every shot. And he's not, you know, he's not like crudely lunging into these. There, he's just leathering you, and uh, you know everything. Everything he lands, even if it lands fully on the gloves and it's fully caught, is it moves his opponents. You feel it, and so it just makes him. It's such a fun fighter to watch because, you know, he's vulnerable, and he's always going to be vulnerable, and that's going to be. I'm not going to talk about too much about possible fight with Canelo. Um, because it, first it doesn't seem immediately on the horizon, but secondly, um, there might be some things in the you know that that would be something to talk about separately, um, and uh, we we might do an article about that. I think we've got one in the plan. I don't want to, you know, I don't, don't want to promise anything, but um, potentially keep an eye out for us doing something about the Terbiev versus uh, um, versus Canelo and how that uh, works out. Um, but yeah, there's um.
those hands will be a problem for Canelo if they ever fight. Is or is what what we can say there. But um, yeah, just in this fight, it was um. Getting back to the fight that did actually just happen, um, yeah, after round four, Beterbiev was clearly aware that, um, yeah, like I say, he knew that the fight might get stopped, he needed to get up on the cards and preferably knock his guy out if he could, and he'd start piling on the pressure, and like, there's been some school of thought that he's, I mean, he's clearly, he's got to be slowing down, at his age, he's um, 36, and, you know, at that age, he's not going to be as fast as he was when he was 30, but he isn't... Um, he isn't shot. He isn't like there was some worry, and um, the first couple of rounds might have made you think that he was gun shy because um, because he seemed to be roughly in position and he wasn't throwing. But um, after the cut happened, um, he was in those positions and he was throwing. So I don't think gun shyness was really coming into it. I don't think he wasn't not able to get off. He was just having a thing, choosing his positions, and uh, and once he needed to. He let go, and yeah, it's a. Uh, it was a. Uh, it turned into a beatdown. It wasn't a beat. You know, it wasn't start to beat down. But fighting better be if he's a uh, simultaneously explosive and attritional, and it's just going to be so hard to deal with. Yeah, there was one moment I can't remember which round it was in. It's probably happened more than once. He hit so hard that, like I say, he hit so hard that even catching it on the gloves will hurt you, and he uses that to his advantage. Like he will unload on the gloves. Like he used to throw away punches anyway, but like he'll unload, he'll clip the gloves, he'll unload on the gloves across the front of the gloves, and the guard will come down just because you know, that shit moves you, and then he'll clip around behind what the gap you've just left. Like he did this to Brown several times, um, where he moved. It, it wasn't the Lomachenko thing where you know the old school Duran sweep the guard with your like one one sweep the guard with the one hand and then come back back behind it with uh, the other hand when the guards come down. He'll just hit the guard. Like, but Terbiev does do that, don't get me wrong, but Terbiev is also manipulating the opponent's guard. He's he's going to be so hard to defend against. He's doing all of that, all the throwaway punches, all the upstairs, downstairs. But he also just, yeah, he just bashes his opponent's guard. The opponent goes, fuck out, the guard comes down because it hurts and he hits him behind it. It's, um yeah, he's going to be... The person to beat him is going to be someone who can... Either use, either stay away from him because, um, you know, as I say, he knows where he needs to be, and his foot, but his footwork is ish, let's say, um, or it's going to be someone who can knock him out. Um, you know, we'll see if that that um, if that challenge comes up for him. Dimitri Bivol, um it would be an interesting challenge because I, you know, I'm not Bivol's biggest fan. Um, I don't particularly like watching box, which might be, you know, it's an odd thing considering I'm a, I just said I'm a fan of Lerone Richards and why would, you know, what, there isn't a serious difference between the two in style, but um, yeah, it is what it is. But, uh, but Pivot is a good mover and he might be able to keep Beterbiev at range, but I'm not convinced by that because um, I'm not convinced that he has enough once Beterbiev gets past that to stick in the fight um, but you know I hope I hope to see it um, yeah that was a it was a fun fight again worth watching um, if you like your violence unlike Richard vs Angora um, if you like your violence this one is worth watching because Bertivier might be the most violent motherfucker on the planet right now um, you know he's not the best uh, he's not the best fighter who is a destroyer because um, depending on who you can destroy that's probably no anyway but um he is the most 
the most relentlessly seeming destruction machine. He's just he's just so fun to watch. Just you know, if you haven't, I can't imagine you listen to this podcast and you haven't seen Batavia fight before. But if if that happens to be true, just go and watch him as a boxing fan. It's um, he's a uh, he's good fun. Um, yeah. Um, it was um, I wanted to talk about uh, our man, um, that me and Taylor um. We did a piece, and Taylor did an interview with him a couple of years ago, and since then he's been um, Israel Madrimov. He has been a little bit disappointing. I mean, he's won everything he needs to. He hasn't lost yet. But we were getting a little bit concerned that um, he has a problem with closing range, and um, that he doesn't do it safely, and he kind of lunges in, and he gets caught, and uh, um, we've both been getting sort of worried... um, that when it gets to the high levels, it's going to get punished for that. And in this fight, it was an odd one because um, he was fighting. Um, he was fighting an opponent who he, he was. You know, the opponent was Michel Soro. He's thirty-four years old. He's um, another Frenchman, um, and he is. He's not a bad fighter at all. He might be past his best. He's thirty-four, but he hadn't fought for two years, and he's never really fought at world level. But Neither has Madrimov. So at the level that they that Soros fought at, you know, he's he was a step up for Madrimov. But you'd think that Madrimov would be good enough to beat him, and that did prove true, um, with some controversy that we'll get to. I say some, it was an insane amount of controversy, it should never have happened. But um but Soro was of the style of fighter. He is an outboxer. He likes to fade off. In theory, he, he he likes to drop off. He likes to box behind a jab and make his opponent come to him. And and Mad, that could have tested Madrimov's ability to close the range. And it did a bit. Like We saw some improvements. We saw there were times when he was throwing away. He was doing some throwaway punches, little bits of feints and things. Um, he was closing the distance behind disguises. But at the same time, he was also doing jab, jab, lean. Like he still has this problem where he throws a double jab, but he doesn't move beyond the double jab. So once he's finished throwing the, the, that double jab, he's still as far away from his opponent as he was when he started. And and that means that if he wants to throw a follow-up, which he usually does, it, he has to lean to do it. And that's just dangerous. And Soro wasn't really able to take, to take advantage of it. And it was this weird thing where Soro... He has a very good jab, sorry, and he wasn't throwing it himself very much, um, which was strange. And you know, later in the fight, he started using it himself, but and that may that may have had to do with Madrimov's jab of his own, um, disincentivizing Soro from throwing it. It's like, you know, you don't want to. If Soro in his career has had has used his jab very well, and in this fight suddenly he wasn't, you don't just want to say he did it for no reason. Madrimov has a good jab, and it may well be that Soro was finding was difficult was having difficulty finding the timing at range to to do that. Like, you know, Matrimov's good at doing that. But but uh, there are concerns with that, uh still concerns with him closing range and there were moments in the fight where I was started to think that may- maybe what Madrimov needs to do is become an outboxer. And, you know, if he can't fix that gap in between his outboxing and his inboxing, then he needs to maybe he needs to accept that uh, his infighting is only going to happen when his opponent comes to him, and if they're not pushing pressure, then he's safer just jabbing, moving, jabbing. You know, and he did some nice stuff like that. he don't, you know, he does. He can do flash stuff at range. It's not impossible. Um, I don't know. That's 
he'll have to work that out between him and his coaches. And I know I'm not the only one who thinks that um, I think he's with Joel Diaz. And um, like Taylor has said so, uh, had said so on the Twitter. And I think I agree that um, I don't know if that's the right fit for him. I don't, you know, I don't want to say you know he's a high level coach. I don't want to say he's never going to find a solution, but um, he might need a different fit because that doesn't seem like. They have been working on it, but it doesn't seem like they've been, they've really zeroed in on the problem. What they've found is workarounds, little, little things that, um, that sort of cover up the issue, but they're not fixing the issue. And it's frustrating because once he is inside, he's magnificent. He's the way he takes the angles and, you know, uh, he does these little shifts and, uh, he shouldn't shift as much as he does. Like this is Taylor's big frustration with him. He shouldn't, uh, switch as much as he does but um and he did less of that in this fight than he often has which is also a plus but yeah so once he's in close he's a magnificent combination fine puncher his head movement's really good he does all that well and it's really good to watch and you wish there were safer ways for him to get inside but if there aren't i don't know he needs to think about these things anyway let's get on to the end of the fight because that was um yeah controversial as shit so basically what happened is at the end of the ninth round, and this is the thing, it could have been the beginning of the end anyway, at the end of the ninth round, Madrimov hurt Sorrow, and he might have been tiring as well, because, um, yeah, the thing that um, that had been happening like the, uh, earlier in the fight, that um, Madrimov had been doing his in and out, in and out thing, and then in the rounds eight and nine, to the great surprise of the commentators, he just started kind of pushing in and fighting, they thought the fight that Sorrow wanted him to be fighting was... I think, you know, Madrimov has always been a good inside fighter and uh, maybe that is also an answer to his vulnerability um, in coming inside. He's only doing it once and they're just staying there. Anyway, that's an aside at this point. Um point is, um, he'd got so a bit tired. Um, you know, they'd been slightly even rounds on paper, but he'd been taking, sapping his energy, shoving him around. Um, and towards the end of round nine, right towards the end, um, he, he did drop back out a bit, and then as he came in, he caught him with his big right hand, and then caught him again, and then he, he sort of wobbled onto the ropes, and uh, Madrimov had him on the ropes, and it was unloading, and the crowd went wild. And the referee just didn't hear the bell, and neither did Madrimov. And he landed, it must have been six or seven shots after the bell, and I'm not blaming Madrimov here, like, it's not, I mean, it would be better if he's aware of the bell, but in the heat of the battle, and uh, if he hasn't heard the 10-second clapper and all of that, it's the referee's job to know when the bell is and separate them if they're still punching. And he just didn't. Uh, and Madrimov, like, Sorrow was hurt. He uh, he finished him off. Like, there was, you know, he did... The, the shots that he landed after the bell did put Mad Sorrow into a, into a state where if the fight had still been going on, it would have been fine for the referee to stop it. But it was after the bell. And he should have had the minute to recover and all of that. And But the referee waved his hands no and everyone jumped in the ring. And at that point, the fight is over. And so then there was this big 10-minute break where, uh, they were, you know, maybe they'll uh, let them carry on. It was just like, no, you can't let them carry on after giving them that much time off. It's just that being nonsensical. That, that it, what needed to happen was a no contest. And I don't know, maybe it was crowd control concerns and it'll get overturned. I, I can't really see that happening. Um... Maybe maybe they'll overturn it. Who the fuck knows? Um, but it should have been a no contest, is what I'm saying here. There's no way. Like, yes, he had him hurt. He might have finished him in the next round, but he didn't. He finished him after the bell in this round. Um, you know, credit to Madrimov. He has there's footage of him agreeing to a rematch. Hopefully, that does actually happen. Um, 
but yeah, it was a, it was an egregiously bad stoppage in what had been like commentators curse. They'd been talking a little bit. Well, I don't think it was the same round. I think it was a little bit earlier. But they'd mentioned that the referee it had been a good clean fight, and the referee had just let them get on with it, not got in the way, and you know just maybe a bit too much not getting in the way. Um, yeah, it's, you know you make mistakes. I don't think it was a militia, you know it wasn't one of these uh, rank incompetencies like um, like um, the last time with um, Hamza Shiraz where. Um, the referee saw him hit him illegally and um, and only docked him a point. It was, you know, it was he didn't hit the referee, didn't hear the bell, and that's on him. But it was a, you know, it was a mistake and not a misreading, not a misapplication of the rules. But it should have been in a contest. Whoever decided that, whether it was the referee or the local commission or whatever, um, yeah, it was. It's just it doesn't sit well, and like. Hamza Shiraz, Israel Madrimov is one of my favourite prospects and I don't like seeing him in these situations. In this case, again, like I say, it wasn't him being dirty. You know, this wasn't one where he clearly saw the guy was done or he did clearly, you know, it wasn't one where he clearly heard the bell and carried on punching. It was it was heat of the moment, but but it probably needs to be a rerun. Um, so, you know, there's that. Um, the other fighter to talk about this card, this card was surprisingly fun. There was a, you know, it was weird. And not everything on it was great, but um, the other thing to talk about it on it was um, Bektigmir Melikuziev, his return to action, and um, that was very disappointing, because um, if you're a hardcore boxing fan, you will remember him earlier in the year, he was fighting Gabrizado, and it should have been, it was supposed to be a bit of a name-building, easy touch, but instead Rosado knocked him out. Um, he caught Beck leaping in with a big shot and knocked him out. And, you know, you would have thought that the hope would be that Beck to Mimilikuzif would take away from that, that he shouldn't be leaping in unprotected. You know, it's similar to the problem that Madrimov has. Um, and before that fight, I thought that Mimilikuzif um, has it less. He's, um, you know, overall less technical boxer than Madrimov. But I didn't think he had this problem as strongly of closing the range or unprotected. But he got caught for it. And you'd have thought the response would be to go back to camp and not do that anymore. And instead, in this fight, he was fighting a guy who was um, completely outmatched. He wasn't there to win. He was there to to give Minakuzia a tune-up fight. Um, Sergei Ekimov, I believe was his name. Yeah, Sergei Ekimov. Uh, you know, he's he's fought Ricard Bolotnik, so he's not completely experienced with high-level guys. But he's not there to... He wasn't there to challenge um, Beck, um, Beck the Bully. He wasn't there to challenge Milikuziev. And he didn't really challenge him. But what really ha- what happened was that Milikuziev seemed to get frustrated. At, I don't know I, if he thought he was going to knock him out in the first round or whatever. But um, he just started... Like, almost everything he threw was launched from way outside. It was just madness. Like, that had been... If his opponent had any capacity for countering, he could easily have ended up like he did against Rosado. It was the complete opposite of what he should have been doing. Um, you know, I described it somewhere or other as a, as a budget Lemieux, a David Lemieux. And, you know, it was like that a fighter as good as Melikuziev should not be putting in performances like that. And he certainly shouldn't be reacting like that to a loss. Like, he, he has to be better schooled than that. And um, he's gone from being a guy... Like in the, the Rosado fight... After the Rosado fight, it was like, okay, he got knocked out. That does put sort of a damper on quite where you think he's going to go because he's not. He gave. He had this impression of being vulnerable, and clearly he's not when he's been sparked. But the technical aspect of what happened, 
was something he could work on. So I, I wasn't putting the, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a blip he has to work back. But I wasn't putting the dampers on where I thought he was going to go as a prospect very much after losing to Rosado. It happens. But after this fight, after watching that performance, I'm honestly just so disappointed. And I'm, at this point, I am like, I don't know if he's ever going to reach world level. And, you know, this is a the guy they were paying money. They nearly got Kovalev. That, that fight fell through. Fell through. That, that would have been put him on the world stage. And now he's, um you know... Now he's friggin', he's fighting some journeyman who's there to be as a tune-up fight, and he's just not just not fixing mistakes, but he's doubling down on them and you know seemingly on purpose doing it more. And it's like if he's doing that, then how can we as viewers trust him? Like it's his career; he doesn't care about what we trust him. You know, unless we're betting, you're betting on him. No, I'm not a gambling, I'm not a gambler, so that's irrelevant to me. But how can we believe that he's going to reach world level and have success there? When in his response to a knockout, he just does the same thing that got him knocked out more. It was, so it was just one of the most, you know, as a boxing fan, you know, me as a boxing fan, one of the things I like watching is fighters develop. Like, um, this is uh, people who know me will know that I like watching prospect. I watch a fair few prospects and I like watching careers as they go along. And sometimes I get too overhyped um, as a fighter comes up um i tend to bias a little bit towards british fighters but that's just because i see more of them by the nature of uh, of what i watch um you know i am um, but i like fighters seem developed and maybe sometimes maybe this is a result of uh, me putting too much expectation on on Medikuziev. but uh yeah the converse of me enjoying watching fighters add little bits to the game as they go on is that i do get frustrated when that doesn't happen for stupid reasons, because like I don't, I'm not going to get mad at a fighter reaching his natural ceiling, right? I'm not going to, I'm not going to get mad that a, that a British level guy or a European level guy doesn't have, just doesn't, you know, he doesn't. Eventually, he's going to reach a level and just not, not get better. But sometimes you see a guy just not address issues that should be addressable, and that's not necessarily his fault. That's going to be the fault of the coaches. And like, you don't want to be sat. I don't want to be sat on my couch telling professional coaches what to do. But at the same time, sometimes it's just shit that they should, it should be fixed. It should be like you're, you are a professional coach. You're getting paid probably quite substantial sums of money to make Melikusiev, um better. And what's happening is he's doubling down on the same thing. And I don't know if that was Melikusiev's fault or the coach's fault, but it was, there's something wrong there. And um, yeah, it was insanely frustrating to watch. It was just so disappointing as a guy that I, I am a fan of, and yeah, it's uh, he's not going to get to world level fighting like that. He won comfortably; he was never in any danger. But it was irritating. Mm. Okay, so I ended on that run, and so to avoid that, we've been going on for nearly an hour, so I'm not going to go on for too much longer. Um, okay, Ramirez versus Gonzalez um, that happened on the Saturday night. I, I mean, I didn't watch it live. I haven't really watched it yet since, so I'm not gonna. You know, I've seen bits of it, but um, I'm not gonna go into that. It was, it was fun. Watch it. You know, I'm gonna sit down and watch it if I really find something to talk about. I'll uh, maybe do an article on it over Christmas. But um, no, what I want to talk about to end on a positive note is um, on the undercard of of um, Dave Morrell versus Atlantis Fox. Um, and people who follow me know that um, I 
enjoy Morel, but I'm skeptical. Yeah, skeptical of him. Like I said this in my preview, I don't think he's. Uh, I don't think he's at the level to be holding this sort of pretend world belt that he's got. That puts him in line. You know, he could be considered a, a mandatory for Canelo. You know, he's is it? No, it's not Canelo. It's um, yeah, it's Canelo. It's he's he's a light heavyweight, so he's no, he's a super middleweight, so it's going to be Canelo. Um, it would have been David Benavidez. You know, Benavidez would flatten him at this stage. Canelo would, you know, he's just not in line with these guys. But he's fun enough. He's fun and he's young, and he's got time to fix these things. I just don't think he should be fixing it, fixing them while holding this belt. Um, yeah, he blasted Atlantis Fox, who's, you know. He is of a level of fighter that could potentially t- test these Captain Dave Morrell, but completely the wrong style. Like, you know, like Atlantis Fox could beat guys who would give Morrell trouble, but he himself was never going to beat give Morrell trouble because he's a defensive fighter with holes in his defence that were allowing Morrell to come in and blast him. Um, there's not too much more to say than that because um, yeah, it was just too much of a one-sided beating, and okay, that's a bit ironic because I'm going to move on to another one-sided beating, but just to end on a note of um, me being really enthused about what I saw, and it was a prospect, like, I, the first time I saw him was doing my pre for the fight, I uh, I did some tape, and I thought, okay, this guy, Jose Valenzuela, like, he's an American, he's a young American lad, um, born in Mexico, but he fights as an American, uh, he's a lightweight, um, and yeah, I, in the preview, uh, in the fights that I watched before, I was impressed with, you know, he's, um, he's very aggressive, and he does get sloppy defensively, but he has some ideas and he's, but his attack is very, you know, he's got this creative attack. His footwork's very nice and he sets up, he does, he does the up and down, upstairs, downstairs work very well. And so, yeah, this will be fun to watch. He was fighting Austin Dulay, who is himself still, he's a young fighter and, you know, he, he can still attach a prospect tag to him after this. He's probably going to become more of a, Journeyman. I don't know if that will happen in America. It doesn't happen as often where guys become the guy, you know, they just kind of move around the sea in fighting. There isn't a British level, like there isn't this regional thing in America. Um, but Austin, Austin Dulay, like he'd lost, he's lost twice before this, and um, but he was a big step up for from where Venezuela had been fighting before. So it could have been a con, you know, a decent contest. And instead, of what, what happened was Venezuela just walked in and you know, absolutely battered him from pillar to post. He dropped him twice, I think twice in the first round, twice in the second, then after that. Um, there were a couple more touchdowns that the referee ruled slips or pushes, but, um, you know, questionably, but um, but it was a complete battering. And he did take shots, like, Dulay's not a mug, and he was always there to throw. Um, he wasn't like um, Bektemir Milikuzov's opponent, who was just kind of there to be there. He was there to try to knock out his opponent, like Dulay was banking on resurrecting his career with a win here. Instead, he got himself um, kicked from pillar to post. Um, stoppage was slightly odd. It was at the beginning of the fourth round. Like basically, I don't know. The doctor decided, the referee decided, um, I don't know, maybe he thought he should have stopped it before and it was probably a fair to say. And then maybe maybe he was hoping that the corner would stop it. And so basically, when they walked out um, for the fourth round, the referee straight away said, right, time out. Can you have a look at this doctor? Okay, stop. And the doctor didn't even really see him. It was clearly the referee's decision. Um, and Dulay was very angry, and he you know, he was yelling that the doctor didn't even look at me, and the doctor didn't even look at me. And, you know, in that sense, he was right to be angry because the referee did stop it of his own volition. Um, really. But 
he you know he was like landing the occasional big hard shot on Venezuela, but it wasn't you know he was getting battered and it could have there were multiple occasions when the referee could have stopped it before. But yeah, basically, Venezuela is one for you to keep an eye on if you like your your prospects, um, because he's just. He's so exciting. He's very aggressive. Um, and like I say, I really like the way he builds his attacks. And um, he's got this important quality of disguising his punches. Like he does his throwaways and all of that. But he's also got this important quality of it's very hard until very late to know where his punches are coming from. And yeah, he's also got this... His footwork is subtle um, for a young guy. That's important. That's not that common. Um, he does that thing that I talk about sometimes of uh, his form... He has a good set stance. His his um you know his hands are down. That is something that uh, you have to fix. Be a bit less lazy with the hands because he's far too he's far too reliant on his reflexes for his defense. That's something we have to work on as he moves up the levels. But his positioning is good. You know to take the sting of things to be able to make, use this reflexive defense. And attacking wise, he does the thing where even though he's taking the, even if he's taking the same steps in theory, it's slightly different. It's not sloppy. It's just slightly different. Um, which makes it harder to predict where the punches are going to come from. And that's a rare thing to see in a guy that's, you know, 22 years old. And it just makes me, you know, I don't know if he's going to be world level or not. I suspect so. I don't know if he's going to be elite, elite. That's much harder to say. But here's a guy, you know, you're talking about him being defensively sloppy rather than being defensively just not there. You know, I'm talking about him needing to fix things to make his defense okay. Like he's never going to be a defensive fighter. But I'm talking about him needing to fix things rather than needing to completely develop a part of his game like so he's a guy i'm going to be from now on i'm going to be following him i wasn't aware of him before now like maybe i should have been i'm aware of him now and i'm going to follow him and i think you should too um yeah i think i'm going to end this podcast on that note um so um yeah next week um there is nothing you know there, there is a there was a fight today um andrew maloney made his um return from uh several years of fighting Joshua Franco fought this Filipino fella, Freudan Saludar. It was a bit one-sided, you know. If you're a fan of um, Maloney, look it up, but it's not that much to talk about. And there's there's a fight on Christmas Day for some reason. Um, Vito Milinitsky is a he's kind of a prospect. He lost unexpectedly once already. If you're there, you know, if you've got time to watch it on Christmas Day, he's he's not not fun worth watching. But I won't be talking about it. You know, I won't be recording a podcast next week. Um, the week after will depend on whether I am able to watch the New Year's Eve fights um, for me to do my regular podcast. Um, so if I do have time to watch some New Year's Eve Japanese cards, um, I may see you then. If not, um, I'll see you the week after. I may record uh, some special episodes and maybe end of year episodes or see what I can do um, in the meantime. But that will depend on my Christmas schedule. Um, other than that, yeah, that's it for this week, and I'll see you whenever next time happens to be. So, you know, stay following the fight site, stay following me if you don't follow me. I'm at Crafty Boxing on Twitter, so please do that. Yeah, follow the fight site, read the fight site, follow all our podcasts, not just mine, especially if you have an inkling for other fight sports. And uh, yeah, till next time.